Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for leading us once again right back to your house. And many different things have happened to us over the course of this week. Some things happy, some things celebrating, some things uh, painful, some things we wish we hadn't happened. But Lord, we thank you that you are over all of it. And that as your word promises us, you are working everything out together for good. So that no matter what we are going through, we can always look to you. We can always have peace. We can always even have joy. As we talked about last week, as we look for your grace in each and every experience. Lord, we thank you for your word that reveals to us all these truths. As we go through this life, it provides answers to every single issue, every single problem, every single painful experience we go through. And we thank you for that. We thank you that you have given it to us to equip us, to equip us not only to live this life, but also to fight the spiritual warfare that is happening all the time, all around us. We thank you for providing for us, protecting us, and equipping us. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. When popular websites ask people to vote on ranking lists of the greatest villains in movies of all time, there are some that pop up on numerous lists, and none of these are going to be surprising to you. All these are going to sound very familiar to you, including on multiple lists across multiple websites. So you're going to see Voldemort, you're going to see Bane, you're going to see Gollum, Palpatine, Saruman, Heath Ledger's version of the Joker, Darth Vader, and Sauron. How many of those recognize? How many of you recognize? Okay, some of you. I got five hands here. Okay. <laughs> some let greed, pride, and selfishness take control of them, and that's what leads to, to their villainous. Others are just psychopaths. Some had some kind of plan to take over the world with their dark desires, and some just wanted to serve their own personal selfishness. We have other historical and biblical figures associated with specific evils. For instance, when I say the name Esau, you instantly think of brash foolishness, right? Those are the words that instantly come to your mind. When I say Cain, you instantly think of murder, right? When I say Jezebel, you instantly think of idolatry. And when I say Judas Iscariot, you instantly think of betrayal, don't you? That's the one word that always immediately comes to your mind. Where we last left Jesus and his disciples about a month ago, Jesus had just finished up washing all of the disciples' feet, including Judas Iscariot's, and then taught on why he did it. He did it to show his radical humility and how if the Son of God and King over the entire universe gave up any right to self-centered pride, then not any one of us had any right to pursue that in our lives. This act and teaching was in direct opposition to what Satan was the epitome of. 
And Jesus gave it as an example for his disciples, including us as his disciples today, to follow and serving one another in humble love. The next major section of the Gospel of John, making up the majority of Jesus' private ministry to his disciples, will be what he shares with, prays for, and reveals to his faithful disciples in the last part of John chapter 13 and going all the way through to the end of chapter 17. It lasts for a long time in the Gospel of John. But something happens before all of that truth and comfort Jesus brings to those faithful disciples. The faithless and traitorous disciple must leave first to go do what he was prophesied to do. And that's where we pick up in our passage this morning. All of this is still happening on the evening of the Thursday of Holy or Passion Week with Jesus' arrest coming up later that same night. So if you brought your Bible with you, please turn to John chapter 13. We're going to be picking up in verse 21. If you didn't, that's okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn to John chapter 13 verse 21. Uh, or look this up on your favorite Bible app on your smartphone. It's in the New Testament. You can look it up in the table of contents or ask a neighbor. There's no shame in that. Now, before we get into what happens and what is said in verse 21, let's go back for a second to what we talked about a few weeks ago. Jesus had revealed to his disciples a couple of verses before this in verse 19, from now on, I am telling you before it happens so that when it does happen, you may believe that I am. The he's not there in the Greek. So he's saying that you may believe I am, that I am God, in other words. So verse 21, we read this. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. So what Jesus says in verse 19 that he's going to tell his disciples before it happens so that it proves that he's God and knows what's going to happen, all, this includes all the revelation Jesus would give regarding the coming Holy Spirit and information about the end times, but that also includes what's immediately about to happen here. Jesus had already revealed to them that from that point on, he would tell them certain things that would happen in order to solidify that only he, as the Son of God, would know these things. And here's the very first thing he reveals would happen. Jesus had already prophesied that one of his disciples would betray him, all the way back in chapter 6. But here, Jesus calls that back to his disciples' minds. And then immediately after he tells them, it happens. Talk about instantaneous fulfillment of prophecy. Now getting back to verse 21, we read that Jesus was troubled in spirit. John described Jesus in the same way back in chapter 12, verse 27 as well. When Jesus declares his impending death. As pointed out by one biblical scholar, what we see here is a perfect combination of Jesus' two natures. In his deity, Jesus knew that Judas would betray him, and he knew why Judas would betray him. To fulfill Old Testament messianic prophecy and to lead to his death to save humanity from our sins. But in his humanity... 
It's not a pleasant thought, is it? It agitates him. He's disturbed that one of those who had been following him all these years had listened to everything he said, was the benefactor of his love and compassionate teaching, and was close to him personally, would choose to betray him. And betray him so deviously at that. Remember when we talked about how Jesus, as our great high priest, also knows everything we go through because he dealt with it himself. Here's another perfect reference. You may be the victim of someone else's betrayal. Betrayal ranges from being backstabbed or thrown under the bus by someone else all the way to being exploited and abused. In any case, this was a person you thought you could trust. And they ended up not caring about you at all and turned around and hurt you in a profound way. You're not alone. The same thing happened to Jesus. And he knows all the emotions you have felt and are feeling. And Jesus was betrayed ultimately to the point of excruciatingly torturous death on a cross. All the disturbed feelings you have felt at your betrayal, Jesus has felt. And we have that description right here. And he point blank, point blank states why he feels the way he feels in verse 21. Once again, he reveals to everyone there, reclining around the table at that Passover meal, that one of them there that evening would betray him. Now what makes this even more treacherous is the word used for betray here is a combination of two Greek words. One that means to hand over to another, and the other that means from close beside. In other words, one who is close beside you, willingly handing you over to a malevolent person to do whatever they please with. It's the highest form of betrayal. You're not just betraying somebody by talking smack about them. You're purposely and willingly making them vulnerable to another person who has nothing but evil intentions for them. And in this extreme case, physically handing you over to torture and death. As the other synoptic gospels explain, Judas had already gone to the religious leaders to inquire what they would give him to betray Jesus and agreed to do it a couple of days before this, on Tuesday afternoon, on the Tuesday afternoon preceding this, this Passover meal. So as one biblical scholar noted, Judas had covered his tracks so well in already doing this that his fellow disciples had no clue it was him. We see this in the next verse, verse 22. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. The other disciples are completely clueless. And no doubt, Judas is feigning just as much confusion as the others. He's obviously going, oh, what? One of us is going to betray? Because he doesn't want to let on either, as the other disciples are just as confused. Verse 23, there was reclining on Jesus' bosom or chest one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. 
And as noted by one biblical scholar, the two closest disciples to Jesus at this point during this Passover meal are the disciple who's reclining on Jesus's chest and then none other than Judas Iscariot on the other side of him. We can infer as much, for as we'll see, Jesus confirms that it's Judas by giving him a piece of bread he had just dipped and handing it to him. This implies that he's right next to Jesus. And as noted by one biblical scholar, ironically, one of the positions of honor at this meal. And so what we see here is a direct juxtaposition of people in Jesus' life. Both seated on either side of him at the two places of honor at this meal. On one side of him is the man who had already betrayed him by going to the authorities and who would fulfill that betrayal in a matter of hours by physically handing him over to abuse, torture, and death at the hands of those authorities. On the other side of him, indeed, literally and physically, at his heart, is one who is described as the disciple whom Jesus loved. We can confidently conclude that this disciple who the Apostle John, who is writing this gospel, describes as the one whom Jesus loved, was none other than the writer of this gospel, the Apostle John. As noted by one biblical scholar, every time this phrase is used, it's in connection with Jesus' death and resurrection. So this, this disciple had to be directly connected to Jesus' death and resurrection in a loving way, and not in a cowardly way. In John 19, Jesus entrusts the care of his mother, Mary, to this same disciple described as the one Jesus loved. Both at the time of Jesus' resurrection and here at this Passover, Peter is differentiated from this disciple Jesus loved. And as if it weren't clear enough, by the end of this gospel, John writes this. Peter turned around and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had also had leaned back on his chest at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who is betraying you? This is the disciple who is testifying about these things and wrote these things down in this gospel, and we know that his testimony is true. In other words, this disciple that is described in this gospel as the one whom Jesus loved is one and the same as the writer of this gospel, the apostle John. Does this mean that Jesus loved only John out of all of his disciples? No, obviously not. But John was one of the disciples Jesus trusted the most with everything about his life and everything about his ministry. Not only was John one of the few to be privy to Jesus' transfiguration and other miracles, but he was presumably the only one of the disciples at the foot of Jesus' cross close enough for Jesus to say and for him and Mary to hear that he was the one Jesus was entrusting the care of his dear, beloved mother to. Similar to the description of the family of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus as ones who Jesus loved. We read that description in John 11. Jesus knew the deep level of faith the Apostle John had in him, and so he had a deeper love 
towards him. As was customary at the Passover meal, so yet again, another piece of evidence, like we talked about a ways back, that this was indeed the Passover meal, the men would dine together in one room, while the women of the house would dine in another room. Especially at the Passover meal, these men would lean reclined at the table, low to the floor, on cushions, and lean on their left elbows at the table. So everybody was kind of facing this way. This would free up their right hands to be the ones they would eat with, take from the table and eat with it. And as no one could use both hands to eat with, because you're reclining on your one elbow, as one biblical scholar mentions, the food would be already served, cut up for you, and ready to eat. And as the men would be reclining on their left arms, their heads would be more or less, the person in front of you is more or less lined up with each other's chests. That thus, the way that John was leaning at the table, his head was at or even on Jesus' chest. Everybody can picture that, right? I got absolutely no response from that. Okay. (laughs) Wake up here. All right. So everybody can picture this, right? All right. I'm glad. glad I'm not just speaking to the wall. Okay. Thus, the way that John was leaning at the table, his head was at or even on Jesus' chest. As John was the closest to Jesus at that point with Judas behind Jesus, Peter motions to him to ask Jesus who was the one who would betray him. Verses 24 through 25. So Simon Peter gestured to him and said to him, tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. He, John, leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom or chest, said to him, Lord, who is it? As mentioned by one biblical scholar, Peter was ready at that point. He's saying, hey, John, find out who that is. Peter's ready to rough somebody up at this point. After all, the Gospel of Luke notes that Peter owned not one but two swords, and he's the only one out of all of them that owned not one but two swords. And as we already know about Peter, he usually spoke or acted with knee-jerk reactions, and not too much usually after he had thought about it for a second. As such, Peter wanted to know the identity of this traitor so he knew who to give a black eye to, to put it mildly. So Peter, not as close to Jesus as John was, gets John to find out the info he wanted to know. John, also curious, leans back towards Jesus and asks him who it was. Instead of just coming out and giving a name, Jesus responds with a curious action in verse 26. Jesus then answered, that is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Now to us, this may not make a whole lot of sense, but if you know a little bit of the background of the Passover meal, this action carries some biting irony along with it. At the Passover meal, there was usually a bowl present containing the bitter herbs that was prescribed for the observance, included with something sweeter to make the bitter herbs a little bit more palatable. A common practice at the Passover meal was for somebody, usually the host, to make a gesture of dipping a piece of bread into this mixture and handing it to someone else as a term of honor to show everybody else there at the table who he thought was special there at the table. 
So in Jesus dipping this piece of bread in this mixture and handing it directly to Judas Iscariot, seated directly behind him, he was not only revealing the answer to John as to who was the traitor, but doing so to make another point. Just as Jesus, as the king of the universe, did not chase after self-promoting exploitation, but humbled himself to the point of washing his disciples' feet as a household servant would do, but he took this practice normally meant to display bestowing honor to the one he knew had already decided to betray him. In this way, as one biblical scholar pointed out, Jesus was showing to John and also Judas that no matter what Judas thought about the situation, Jesus knew what was happening and he was in complete control of everything going on. Jesus was not in the dark. Jesus was not powerless in, in any way to prevent anything that had already happened or was about to happen. Instead, Jesus was in complete control. And, and everything was going according to God's plan, and Jesus was going willingly to the cross and everything that would soon happen after his betrayal. Jesus knew that God the Father and God the Father's plan were the ones sovereign over everything, over all. Not anything Judas, nor any other human, nor any fallen angel thought they were doing. Speaking of that fallen angel, verse 27, after the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. Who is Jesus speaking to here? Yes, he's speaking to Judas, the man who would physically betray him, but he's ultimately speaking to the one possessing Judas at that point. Like we talked about around a month ago, from the very moment God created the pinnacle of his creation, the first man and first woman, Satan has been seeking his revenge for the rebuke and punishment God meted out to him for his betrayal of God. God saw the violence and murder Lucifer had in his heart based on his self-promoting pride and knew that could have no place in his holy heaven. Bit by bit, Lucifer was stripped of his position and power, and God kicked him out of heaven in the capacity he once enjoyed. According to biblical scholarship, once Lucifer had betrayed God by lifting himself up to the same level, Jesus describes that his punishment was swift and obvious and clear, and he was hurled out of heaven like lightning falling from the sky. And we read this in Luke chapter 10. And he said to them, Jesus, I watched Satan fall from heaven like lightning. By this, we know Jesus, as the Son of God, was there at that point and watched the whole thing happen. Lucifer was hurled out of heaven, fell to this earth below, and now makes it his mission to destroy as much of God's creation as he's allowed to do. Satan is known in the New Testament by several different titles. The ruler of this world, from John chapter 12 and chapter 14. The prince of the power of the air, 
from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2. And the God, lower G, lowercase g, of this world. 2 Corinthians 4. He has great power and influence in this current world, but according to the book of Job, is still limited to what God only allows him to do. As such, Satan has had his plan for the entire history of this world to destroy as much of humanity as possible and to try to derail the prophesied plan of the deliverer for that humanity. Here, Satan, in his blindful pride, fully thinks he's this close to having his victory over that deliverer. He's planted the idea of betraying Jesus into the heart of a man, and now to prevent anything from ruining that plan, he follows through with this plan of betrayal himself. But notice how Jesus says what he says directly to Satan. This is why I said, who's he ultimately talking to? Is this a question? Is it a question? No, not at all. What is it? It's a command, isn't it? No matter what Satan thinks is happening or how victorious he thinks he is, he's still not the one in, ultimately, in ultimate control. Who is? Jesus. Jesus is. Jesus had always been in control, and Jesus will always be in control. Satan's not having victory over Jesus. Jesus is willingly giving himself over to what will soon happen to him. Satan thinks he's finally getting rid of the deliverer. Jesus knows that Satan is merely another pawn in God's plan to fulfill all the messianic prophecy of the deliverer in order to save those humans who put their faith and trust in him from their sins and from the hell that awaits everyone who never does that. Everyone else there that night had no clue what was going on. Verses 28 through 30. Now, no, no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. For some were supposing, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things we have need of for the feast, or else that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel, he, Judas, went out immediately, and it was night. Now, it was customary for Jewish people to do some kind of charitable work or give to the poor on Passover. If you remember, when we covered this over a month ago, Jesus and his disciples were following the Galilean method of calculating days and observing the Passover Thursday evening, while a lot of other people, including the Sadducees and the societally affluent, would be observing it the next day. Thus, the disciples may have been thinking about Judas and taking care of the ministry's purse strings would be going to give some of that money to the poor in connection with the next day's observance of Passover. Judas, in taking the piece of bread, being directly possessed by Satan, and then entering out into the night, all referenced the spiritual darkness that permeated all of it. None of the other disciples knew what was happening at the time. But Jesus knew full well and was completely sovereign over all of it. 
Satan in possessing the man who had and would betray Jesus in symbolism of the night of the spiritual darkness covering the whole world at that point, thought he was so close to victory he could taste it. But Jesus knew he was only serving his role in God's overall sovereign plan. You may have been the victim of someone else's betrayal. You may have been backstabbed by a family member or who you thought was a close friend. You may have been publicly thrown under the bus by someone you thought you knew. You may have been personally sinned against by someone you loved. You may have been horribly abused and exploited in any given way by someone you thought you could trust. It's very painful. No one's denying that. But know this, Jesus has not only been there, has not only been in your shoes, but know that God and his plan are still sovereign. Your God is the God of redemption. Your God is the God who will have his revenge in his timing and for his purposes. And your God loves you with such ferocity it exceeds human description. In addition, for all of us, remember those terms God's word uses for Satan, ruler of this world, prince of the power of the air, and God, lowercase g, of this world. Satan, by all appearances, you look around the world, looks to be winning, doesn't he? As God's word states, he is the ruler of this world, albeit only under the control of God. Humanity is being destroyed in multiple and various ways. We've specifically referenced these various ways a lot lately. Do not be deceived into thinking that abortion, the transgender movement targeting our children with the end result of sterilization and sky-high rates of suicide, the movements over the past 80 years that have sought to destroy uh, the positions and roles God inherently created men and women to possess for functionality in biblical marriage, the raising of children and society in general, is just as destructive to humanity as the thousands of years of war, human exploitation, abuse, and all kinds of sexual relationships outside of marriage, porn, and substance abuse of any kind have been. And look at, all, at any human rulers of any kind of human government in the world. And you can clearly see the corruption and influence by the spirit of Satan in most everything they do. Including the destruction of the people they espouse to be serving and leading. God's word also describes that any other deities that humans think they're worshiping are really demons in disguise fooling them into thinking that they're deities. You can plug any one of the world's religions outside of biblical Christianity into that equation, and it's the same. Whether it's self-enlightenment or self 
improvement or rejecting biblical Christianity as myth, superstition, or lies, or refusing to put one's full trust in, in Jesus who died for them, seeking what horosco horoscopes, tarot, or palms, or mediums who are really just communicating with demons, if not flat-out con artists, or worshiping any other gods or goddesses, all of it is all deception that is really just playing into the hands of Satan. Remember what God's word describes him as. He descri describes him as the lowercase g, God of this world. As I've said on multiple occasions, don't be surprised when we see with each day, especially in these days, more visible manifestations of the demonic realm in the days ahead either. Do not be surprised about that. Satan knows his time as ruler and lowercase g God of this world is quickly coming to a close and that Jesus is coming back soon. Remember how Paul described this demonic realm. He said, for our struggle in Ephesians 6 is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. That is who we're really struggling and wrestling against. We will be fighting with the armor of God and fighting against this demonic realm through the power of the Holy Spirit until the day we die or until Jesus comes back for us. But we are always to remember this, who is still, has always been, and always will be in control of everything happening. The God we serve, who bought us with the blood of Christ, still, has always been, and always will be in complete control of everything going on and everything happening. Trust him and find rest in his perfect plan. He has already given us the victory over our sin, including the most powerful sins we struggle with. He has already given us the victory over fear and anxiety and depression or any other mental or psychological condition we struggle with. He has already given us the victory over the entire realm of Satan, his demons, and the kingdom of darkness. And he has already given us the victory over death, turning it into a doorway to being in his presence for all of eternity. We can stand firm and strong in the armor of God because we already know he has won the victory over Satan, sin, and death. As Paul writes to the Corinthian church, where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be firm, be immovable, always excelling in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Be firm, be immovable, always excelling in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is never in vain if we're doing it for the Lord. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word. We know what kind of days we're living in in this world. And it's increasingly looking more and more like you're coming back for us with each passing day very, very soon. Lord, I pray if there's anybody here who has not yet repented of their sins and taken you as Savior and King, knowing that they have an eternity of heaven to look forward to and not being condemned to the hell that awaits any one of us if we never do that, I pray that they would do that right now, that they would turn to you, repent of their sins, ask for forgiveness of their sins, and take you as their Savior and live for you as King for the rest of their lives. We thank you for all the power and all the peace, all the promises that come with becoming a child of God. Only becoming a child of God through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and taking that for ourselves. Lord, as we come before your table in a, in a couple of minutes, I pray that you would prepare our hearts as we meditate on who you are, we meditate on your great sacrifice, and we partake in the elements that represent your broken body and your blood spilt for us. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand with me as we transition.